Welcome back into the Royals Farm Report. My name is Joel Penfield, joined as always by Alex Duvall. And let's change it, let's change it up a little bit this week. You want, you want to go into some football? Let's talk a little football. How about Luther burden to your secondary committing to the, the University of Missouri? I got my true son hoodie on. What's up? M-I-Z-Z-O-U. Um, man, I am so excited. I was literally about to sit down and start prepping for this podcast because I knew we were going to talk a little football. And I'm like, is there any way we can bring it back to the Royals? And now I don't care. Joel, we can talk about whatever the hell you want to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about Luther Burden. We're going to talk a little Chiefs football. We'll talk a little baseball here at the end of the podcast. Um, But Luther Burden, the number one wide receiver recruit in the United States, a top 10 overall recruit in the United States, coming to the University of Missouri in January. Joel, I'm a little jaded because of what happened with the whole DGB thing, but I think a lot of Mizzou fans forget DGB was actually really good when he played in his uniform. He had the off the field issues, but this dude is a different kind of wide receiver recruit, but on the same level. And I don't think like we Mizzou was playing in Atlanta against Auburn and Alabama when DGB was here. Like we were playing in SEC championship games. Like that's the kind of game changer a receiver like that can be. I am so excited. This Eliab Drinkwitz has got a recruiting class put together, top 15 recruiting class in the country, a bunch of four-star recruits, now a five-star recruit. Mizzou is back. Put it on the map. Mizzou is back. We may not win seven games this year. We may not win seven games next year. But in the fall of 2023, Joel, Mizzou back in Atlanta, you book it. SEC championship game against probably the University of Alabama, where we're probably going to get steamrolled. I've mentioned this on this podcast before, Joel. Four times in my life, Mizzou has been one game away from the national championship. Now, that game has usually been insurmountable. Like, they they were never really particularly close to winning any of those four games. That doesn't change the fact that if they win any of those four games, two Big 12 championships against Oklahoma – SEC championship against Auburn, SEC championship against Alabama. Mizzou is going to the national championship game. Fall of 2023, Luther Burden sophomore year. Go ahead and write it in pen on your calendar. Joel, we're going to Atlanta to watch us get routed up against Alabama in what will be the 2023 SEC championship game. Hopefully your defense stops giving up 50 burgers by that point. But Won't matter. Yeah. We're going to be putting up 50 burgers too. We're going to be 9-3, and 10-2. and two highest scoring offense in the in the league it's, it's it ain't gonna matter joel we're gonna be scoring 50 burgers see at that point you might as well just come back to the big 12 we, we, this is right back on brand with seth's idea of um you know what yeah, football, so. yeah exactly <laughs> no, I, hey I'm, I'm loving football season right now my, my cowboys oklahoma state cowboys not dallas we're not, i'm not going that but oklahoma state cowboys are six and oh just went down to austin and uh ruined Bajan robinson's heisman campaign made casey thompson look terrible made sark look like for the second week in a row, choking a double-digit lead to an Oklahoma University. It's good stuff here. Now we got to go to not back. No, Texas is not back. They will never be back. They will always be irrelevant and Charmin soft. They're all the way out of here. Texas stinks. They're not just not good. They stink. So I I don't know if you saw this too, but there were, I have a a bunch of friends that were at the game. There was a pretty good contingency of Oklahoma State fans in Austin for the game. And as the game is ending. Tanner McAllister gets the, the interception on Casey Thompson to essentially ice the game. And 
Oklahoma State fans that were kind of like up in like the upper bowl or sorry, SEC, SEC, SEC. And as they were leaving the stadium, same thing. So a nice little jab. And if that's the last time we get, we have to go to Austin a stadium in which Oklahoma State has won six of their last seven in Austin. Uh, good riddance by go be seven and five in the SEC and take all that money and enjoy being irrelevant still. I'll tell you what the, the irony of that is there's not a school that would be benefited more, in my opinion, than Texas moving to the SEC. I know right now it sounds like, because you're right, right now they're going to get squashed. But you talk about a school that shouldn't have, shouldn't be having a hard time recruiting, except for the fact that, hey, we're going to go play Big 12 football, and guys are like, I'd rather go play for a and I can go play in the SEC. I'm going to sneak out over here. Sorry about your day. They want to go play in the Big 12. Big 12 stinks. So they want to go play in SEC, SEC football. You, you're Texas now, in all seriousness, you moved to the SEC. You really don't have any more excuses, so you put a lot of pressure on yourself to succeed. But in all seriousness, those recruits who want to go play at the highest level of college football, they, they can do that now and go play for Texas. So I know a lot of fans are getting their jokes off, and it looks like right now Texas might get dog-walked when they come to the SEC. There are worse days are better than Missouri's best days. Those days are over with. You're going to come to the SEC. You're going to get walked all over by the SEC football but could also be a useful recruiting tool for the Longhorns. And I'm having fun. And I was making the jokes about, you know, no defense in the Big 12, but I don't know if anybody saw the stats. But Oklahoma State gave up a single individual yard to Texas in the fourth quarter and only 14 yards over the final 26-17. So I'm not used to, and I can't remember a time where I actually trusted the Oklahoma State defense more than the offense, but there is something about watching some really good defensive football that is pretty satisfying and, it's going to lead Oklahoma State to a, you know, we're on a collision course right now to play Bedlam basically two weeks in a row where at the end of the end of the year and then uh, and then in Dallas for the Big 12 championship. And that terrifies me because I'm going to watch my team get dog walked two weeks in a row by the same team. And that is going to hurt my heart a lot. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there for now. Six and oh, eighth in the nation. Go Pokes. Now. We're here in just a second. We're going to talk to Kent Swanson. We're going to stick with the football theme on this episode. Because we can. We, we want to do off-season content. We'll talk a little Royals toward the end, but it's football season. Football season's in full swing. The Chiefs are coming off a uh, coming off a win against the Washington football team. And uh, Ken Swanson, the KC Sports Network, a, uh, I, he hasn't been on our show, but he, he supports our work, and I, I'll consider him a friend of the site because uh, he, he does a lot of good work for Kansas City Sports and promotes us. So uh, I'm excited to have a conversation with him. He, he's super knowledgeable, obviously, and what the, the content they do over at KCSN with the Nerd Squad is, is some really good stuff. So I, I'm excited for this. Absolutely. I love Kent. Kent is like one of my favorite people on Twitter, so I'm excited to talk to him. I've talked to him like privately in group chats or in like a, like a message – messages but i never talked to kent met kent virtually so i'm excited to meet kent excited to talk to kent yeah this will be a lot of fun we'll, we'll get to talk uh, talk some chiefs and uh we'll talk we'll do that on the other side of this break joining us now is hollywood kent swanson kc sports network kc laboratory uh incredible incredible chiefs content uh, with Matt Lane and Craig Stout joining us now. And even though this is your first time on the show, I consider you a friend of the site. You support our work just like we support you guys. So this is a, you, you said it off air, like you guys are nerds for football, we're nerds for baseball. It's kind of a, a kindred spirit thing. So I'm glad that you, we get to do this and welcome on. I, I absolutely love what you guys do. 
I cannot tell you how big of fans I am of what y'all are doing. And I nerd out. I mean, I'm, I am not as in the weeds, you know, I don't have a lot of Vinny Pascatino takes, but I very much follow everything. Uh, I, I follow prospects very closely with the Royals too. I, I nerd out about all this stuff and you guys are the absolute resource for it. And I cannot tell you how much I respect what you're doing because I know the kind of, uh, I know the kind of work it takes to do what you guys are doing. So um, I, I, God, I can't speak enough. I can't speak highly enough. This is like, I'm not trying to gush too much, but like big fans. I love what y'all do. And uh, I know, I know it's not easy. So yeah, mad respect to you guys. Well, I appreciate that. We know you guys are starting up a uh, Casey sports network over kind of doing your own thing, specifically covering the chiefs. I, I I've tweeted it a couple of times. Every time the chiefs game ends and if I'm, if I'm home or in the car, you know, I love going over and listening to you guys' live post-game coverage from – has been from the bullpen. Um, I know you're moving soon to a, to a new location for post-game coverage. Where is it going to be? It's a new bar. Yeah, they're, they're making a new bar. So the, the owner of the bullpen is making a new bar, the Kingdom Bar and Grill. I can't remember the exact location of it. It's going to be in Overland Park too, but some of the stuff I've heard about, it's going to be pretty dope. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't wait. There's just – you know, there's like – there's stuff they got to work through to get it finished. It's kind of like on delay a little bit, but – yeah, it's going to be a fun place to be, and yeah, check it out when, uh, whenever, whenever it launches, which I think maybe in November. We all followed over at Arrowhead Pride as well, our SB Nation sister site a little bit, but the the work you guys are doing over there independently has been outstanding to watch, and pretty quick growth too, uh, rising from you guys just started it this year to having you know a pretty large following. It's been fun to follow. So like like Joel and you, and you were saying. It's, um, you know, an appreciation for, for cross sport work here. So I'm um, glad we can do a little collaboration tonight, man. I'm, I'm excited to talk to y'all for real. So uh, let's, uh, I, whatever y'all want to talk about, we can, we can, we can gush about Royals. Pro- I, can I ask you Royals prospect questions later? Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> we, we welcome that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I do. Like, what's, what's he saying? Step brothers. Uh, I think it'd be beneficial. if We do the interviewing. If we ask the question, <laughs> <laughs> but Kent, so obviously this year has been not as expected to this point for the Chiefs. Um, three and three, a couple of just head-scratching losses, you know, losing to the uh, the Ravens at the end after, you know, blowing a double-digit lead, losing to the Chargers at home, getting just dog-walked by the Bills for the most part of that, that game. But you get a couple of wins in here. You know, you, there was, a, I think, the second half of the Washington game there were a lot of positive indicators of what this team could be, but just some general thoughts from you on what we've seen to this point. Like, I think this is an opportunity to talk a lot of chiefs fans off the ledge a little bit, but uh, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you take the lead. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's just such an uncharacteristic year for, for what we've become accustomed to. And like, this is, you know, the standard that we've seen from, from a Mahomes led team has just really spoiled us in a lot of different ways. And I think the fact that the losing streak happened so early in the year makes it feels like like the sky is falling. And I'm not going to try to absolve this team of all their issues because this is I think this is probably the most flawed team of the Patrick Mahomes era. Like I, I genuinely that's in, you know, I mean, that might include, you know, the you know, the, the year that they didn't make the Super Bowl, you know, um, but. I mean, I think there's still a lot of there's still a lot of good things that, you know, there's some positive things with the offense like they are historically you know, great on a per possession basis. And they're turning the ball over at what we think is probably a, um, a non repeatable, you know, kind of 
kind of rate. I mean, it's absurd. So like, you know, there's some stuff there. So the offense really is exceptional despite all the issues with Mahomes and all that stuff. Defensively, the last six quarters have been really good, you know, so there's that too. So um, I don't know. It's kind of, this is a pretty pivotal moment, I think, in kind of figuring out exactly what this team is. Like I think this Tennessee game coming up, a pretty big litmus test because the Chiefs haven't beat those teams that are in first place in their divisions. I mean, you think about it, they've lost, I believe they've lost to three first place divisional team or division teams, and now they're playing another one. So, um, yeah, that's this is a big litmus test coming up. And, and if, if some of the you know indicators we've seen six week or six quarters of good defense and the offense the way it was in the second half of that game, man, this could be a you know, this could be a pretty defining moment for this team this upcoming game. I tweeted something the other day that Derrick Henry has never – it was yesterday. Derrick Henry, for the first time in his career, has five consecutive games of 100 rushing yards. Previously, he had one four-game stretch, one three-game stretch. All good things must come to an end. I actually think that when it has mattered the most, the Chiefs have done a really good job of stepping up and, and stopping teams from – making the game unplayable on the ground on defense, like more so like it just seems that way. Maybe, maybe you're going to tell me I'm wrong. I know the Baltimore game got out of hand, but like the AFC championship game against Tennessee, when it mattered the most, the running game was irrelevant against Cleveland this year. It just wasn't enough against Baltimore. If Clyde Edwards or Edwards Alaire just doesn't fumble the football, the game doesn't matter. You, you ran the ball as well as an NFL team can run the ball against the chiefs. And you still were going to lose if you don't fumble the football at the last moment. I don't think Derrick Henry's running for 100 yards on Sunday. Well, I mean, he might not. Uh, I, you know, I think it depends on the game script a little bit. You know, I think if the Chiefs can kind of put the, you know, put the Titans a little bit behind the eight ball, you know, with the game script early, they can start fast. I mean, I, there's some crazy stat about Mike, Mike Vrabel leading at the half. Like, you don't want to be trailing Tennessee at the half. Uh, it a little bit probably has to do with Derrick Henry and the way he kind of seems to get stronger during the game, especially if the game script allows them to continue just to run the football. So, you know, I think the chiefs are gotta be really intentional about starting fast. That'll help the defense, which, I mean, I think there's some, some signs with the defense that, you know, you're, you're, you're encouraged by some of the things that you've seen from them, especially, I mean, if it gets the run, I think there's been some good indicators even before that six quarters of good defense that we've seen recently. So, I mean, it'll be interesting. Uh, and I, I, I think if the Chiefs go out and do what they're doing offensively, and 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 the you know the Chiefs defense just gets a few stops early, just you know kind of changes that game script a little bit. Things could get really advantageous for the Chiefs. Do you believe in the short week and the letdown game theories? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it'll be enough for the Chiefs to win. We'll see. I, I I'm gonna pick the Chiefs to win, but like I do think there's definitely a little bit of that there. I mean, that was a that was a physical game. That was an emotional game, no doubt about it. And, you know, Derrick Henry, they they rode Derrick Henry late during that game. They lost Taylor Luan. They lost Caleb Farley. They lost Cameron Batson. They lost some dudes on the way along to winning that game, which was, I mean, I think impressive and kind of an indicator of the, you know, the DNA of that team. But um, also, I mean, but there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion and there's some attrition that happened. And that's good for the Chiefs. This is a, probably a good time to be playing the Titans for a lot of different reasons. Are the Titans, in your opinion, more like the team that got beat by the freaking Jets, or are they more like the team that beat the Buffalo Bills? Ooh, man, what a cop-out answer this is about to be. <laughs> I mean, I like a little bit of both, probably. 
you know, like I, I hate to say that, but I mean, that's the high and the low. And I mean, I would say, I think they're probably a pretty good football team. They're probably performance wise. They're probably a little bit closer to the bills win than the, than the jets loss, I would say. But I mean, I don't, I don't know if I have supreme confidence in this team's ability to, you know, sustain the success they had against the bills against a bunch of different teams, a bunch of different weeks. I mean, that game was real close to being lost too. Like, I mean, it, it was, it was tight. I mean, hanging with the bills is a credit enough to them. I would say though. Uh, I think that's fair. So when we look at the offense, it's, you know, like you said, on a per possession basis, it's one of the best offenses that the NFL has ever seen, but it's the turnovers and the self-destruction at times that has, completely you know hampered them in certain spots and i've i've tried to rationalize it in a way trying to figure out like what the heck is going on because even patrick mahomes for as great as and amazing as he is has made like head scratching plays that he didn't make even in his first year as a starter and i've been trying to rationalize it in a way and you can tell me if i'm completely off base here but it feels like the offense is pressing in a way and they feel like they have to be so fine and so perfect because as much as they may, they will not admit it, they know that if they come off the field twice, they put themselves in a very significant position to lose the game. Like if Tommy Townsend has to come on the field once or twice, like they're, they're, they're going to lose the game. So they try and make the perfect play or they try and make every single play possible when even when it's not there. Like we saw the the interception Mahomes threw at the end of the first half. Like that that felt like a perfect example of it. Am I am I off base here or do you think that there's some there's some rationale of that? I think they're, I think, I don't know if it's the offense pressing as much as it is just Mahomes. And maybe they all feel that a little bit and they feel a little bit of the pressure, but I think there's a lot of the pressing is actually coming from Patrick Mahomes and all that to say all that. And he's still just, I mean, he's really having, he's still having a good year. There's just a few more uncharacteristic plays by Patrick Mahomes standards, you know? So, which is a little bit of that pressing. I mean, he's still really, really, he's still the best quarterback in the world. Yes. I, I will put him up against anyway. I will take him over anybody. I will, I will go toe-to-toe. I will pick Mahomes every time, even with all the interceptions that we've seen lately. So it's kind of weird to talk about a guy that maybe just looks a little bit uncharacteristic. And that's kind of the weird thing is, yeah, he is, he's, you know, he's pressing at times. He is trying to, like I saw someone said, he's trying to score 21 points every throw. And it's true. There are some times where he is trying to throw 21 points at, or trying to, you know, score 21 points every throw. But I mean, at the same time, I think we've just normalized how good he is and we've normalized, you know, there's what we've come to expect out of that position, out of that player is just so unreasonably high that any issues here or there are just getting magnified. And I think that's where we're at right now. And he's, man, he's, he's still, I mean, the, the second half against Washington was absurd and it looked a lot like the guy that we've kind of got used to. And (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm not trying to get long winded, but I'm also thinking about this too. It's like, this man is sitting in front of five brand new offensive linemen. What did we expect? Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, again, this man is just, we've, he's been so like his, his greatness has just been so normalized. And that's, there's, there's a lot of reasons this that could be happening. I don't think it's a coincidence that Remmers jumps in and he feels more comfortable escaping yeah. from the front side though. I do think that's interesting. It, it was so funny watching the second half, the first half versus the second half. Like you saw him, and I, I, I saw someone tweet this and I wish I could give them credit, but it was when you see someone throw as bad an interception as he threw in the first half for a lot of quarterbacks, probably like 85% of the league, they would not, they would just sit in the pocket. They make their first read to make the simple throw. And he goes out and is throwing shovel passes 10 yard shovel passes and ripping like 
that ball he threw to Tyreek Hill in the end zone was no less than 90 miles an hour. Like he, he ripped that thing. <laughs> and then the throw that didn't count, that might be the most ridiculous throw he's made in his career. Like for Bonkers. him to stay, to stay himself and to still have the confidence to make any play and know, Oh yeah, I know how, I know how good I am. Like that says a lot about the, the, you know, the stuff between the ears for him that he knows he's going to make a mistake and he's going to just keep doing him because that's just what he does. Mentally, it's everything. And people don't realize, especially quarterback position, how mental that position really can be, which is what makes a lot of what he does so remarkable is that willingness and guts to challenge and succeed at such a high clip when he does. Because I don't think his interceptions have necessarily been a lot of, you know, dumb decisions down the field. There's been some drops. There's been the, I, I, the, whatever that, <laughs> whatever that turnover right before the half was against Washington. I don't know. Like you can explain away some of the interceptions. I think some of this antsiness, some of this, you know, forcefulness, some of this, you know, trying to score 21 points isn't even necessarily represented in all the interceptions. I think it's just been some of his plays, but man, watching him fire with confidence and, you know, Andy kind of talked about saying, you know, some guys were saying enough is enough at halftime of that Washington game. Boy, it looked like enough was enough for Mahomes because the way he started kind of creating outside the pocket, the swag was back, some of the throws he was making. And that crossbody throw that you talked about that didn't count, I mean, that throw was like anticipation falling away, you know, leading a receiver, throwing a ball up and down over two defenders, crossbody. I mean, the confidence to do that. And he, he looked back. And if that guy is here the rest of the year, I mean, this I mean, the teams the Chiefs are probably favored for every game the rest of the season anyway. But man, yeah, they they could make, they could go on a little run here for sure. I just the, laughed hysterically when he made that throw. Like I, I know him, it's you know it, it's and again like eighty five percent of the league if they're running out of the pocket that way you're just going oh god what's about to happen and I was just sitting there and everyone else in the room I was watching with I was watching with my parents and my wife and they're all like what is he doing and he makes the throw I just started laughing like there's a, what else are you going to do when he's making that type of throw like he does that a lot to people like i laugh at a lot of throws he makes like and it's not normal you gotta appreciate what you have and why you have it because it he's normalized a lot of remarkable things there's there's no one i don't know there's really i I know josh allen's got the strong arm i don't know if he can make that throw no not from the angles and that's where you know we talk about you know the baseball coming in and the idea of playing multi-sport athletes and training um you know differently for different games like he makes throws who other quarterbacks don't seem to be able to get like their hips in line with that's where it starts is getting your hips and your shoulders squared and be able to create the angle. And he does things that you watch. It's like, well, that's, I mean, as a baseball fan, like that's just turning two. like, that is just a simple clear your hips, throw it to the second baseman. Let's get the double play started where you don't see a lot of quarterbacks getting that position. They were talking about it last time on the broadcast. When Josh Allen rolls left. He can't make those throws because he can't, he's, I don't know if it's his stiffness. I don't know if it's a lack of flexibility. I think it's a sound rolling left doesn't get his shoulders in a spot where he can make those throws. So if you can make him uncomfortable that way, Mahomes doesn't have that. Mahomes rolling left is so much fun. I will never forget the throw he made against the Texans in the playoff game where he kept like one foot behind the line of scrimmage, rolled left, and then like like threw like almost like a dart over his head almost to Kelsey in the end zone. It's just like what like what angles are you you are like it's almost like he has to have practiced this and, and maybe he has yes he, he, um, he does he does he absolutely does i th- dude you're you're so right though you really are as far as like this this 
I, I, I think I, I have a lot of stances. I think every kid should play every sport ever and work every muscle that they possibly can. But like Mahomes and, you know, Russell Wilson, you know, some of these guys, Zach Wilson, there is a natural fluidity through the frame that allows them to make some, you know, body adjustment throws and like Trevor Lawrence, like there's this thing, I, you know, this thing that with, with quarterbacks these days is a lot of them are coming out of a football factory. Like Trevor Lawrence has been drilled in his head to set his feet and his feet have to be perfect. And he has to create as perfect of a platform as he can, even though he doesn't need it all the time, but there's some stiffness through his frame and you, what, you know, things are not perfect in, in the NFL. Things are not perfect in that pocket, especially as offensive linemen are struggling to, you know, develop at the same rate they used to. And the game has changed so much. So you see guys like Mahomes that have that background that have that fluidity in their frame because they, they spent a lot of time turning two. they, you know, they backhanded a ball and, and, you know, jumped and tried to, you know, throw across the diamond and stuff like that. There's so much there that translates to the sport. And that's why it's, it, I do think like some, I, I, I'm, I firmly believe some of that naturalness in their ability, in people's ability to throw, you know, you know, like a, like a Mahomes, I think it's crucial. I get something I look for when I'm evaluating quarterback prospects. I don't know if there's a good example or a good comparison for Mahomes cross sport. He reminds me, or, and not even like, again, like he reminds me, like what he's done to football reminds me a little bit of what Steph Curry did to basketball, where Steph Curry and this wave of three-point shooters made it, like they, they changed the game and of the NBA a little bit, where three and D is the new, is the new in, right? That's, that's what everybody looks for. Um, and in the NFL, there's a huge wave of going forward on fourth down and being more aggressive in situations where Madden players have been doing it forever anyway. But now the NFL is like catching on. And I don't want to say that Mahomes sparked that, but it feels like there's a pretty good correlation between Mahomes entering the NFL and teams ha- having a willingness to go for it on fourth down more often. Because if you can't score, it doesn't matter. Like, why would you ever – put your defense on the field and voluntarily give Mahomes the football. Like it's, it's not a winning formula and it just feels like both players have transcended the game just a little bit. And if, if you're looking for a baseball comparison, Mike Trout, maybe a little bit in, in a sense of Mike Trout's best pitch that he hits is the low ball. And it used to be used to, we used to tell pitchers, throw it low, throw it low, keep it down, keep it down. Mike Trout comes onto the scene. You want to throw it down? I'm going to hit 400 home runs <laughs> on everything that you throw low. That's fine. I'm, I've learned to hit the low pitch. And now pitchers are elevating fastballs again. Like It's almost like you can kind of pinpoint the transition of the games between transcendent players who took a weakness of the game, made it their strength, and now the entire sport is having to, to adjust to this transcendent player in whatever sport it is. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy too. Like, I think like the, it's weird. Cause like, I do think the Seth Warriors analogy is perfect. And I think that that's what the 2018 chiefs offense did. I actually have a really good receipt saying like when they signed Sammy Watkins that the chiefs have a chance to be that because they are pushing the boundaries. Patrick Mahomes pushes the boundaries and ex- like uh, with Steph Curry, he extends the floor, you know, Steph Curry will extend the floor and that offense extended the floor and how far you have to go out and defend, spread things out even farther. It's exactly what the chiefs did because Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid can take some of these West coast staples. He can stretch them. You know, he can add distance and length 
and force defenses to cover more of that field because Patrick Mahomes can drive a ball on a slant or he can drive a ball on a 20 yard route the way some quarterbacks can on a 10 yard route. So that creates this ability to stretch the field and train. It really does. And in the run pass option game built on top of that too, because you know, the chiefs were, they were early on the run pass option, but they were also, I think they got more innovative with Mahomes because of his ability to throw athletically his arm talent. You know, some of those slant run pass options you saw, like the first game that Patrick Mahomes kind of established himself as the starter when his first game as the starter, there, there's a lot of things that he added and a lot of layers and elements that just made that offense impossible. And that's where we're at today. Uh, we could do it. We, we might just do an entire podcast on Patrick Mahomes <laughs> on this off season. Cause we can, I mean, you can tie in enough baseball that we can still make it a baseball show. There you but go. I, I do want to talk about you. You mentioned it when I was asking about your overall thoughts of the season, and this is the most flawed team of the Patrick Mahomes era. And I think that's pretty apparent. I want to shift the conversation a little bit to, draft the 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 draft is what we are seeing this year with some of the roster construction the holes and the flaws in it is this kind of the culmination of the last few years of Brett Veach missing on enough draft picks that they're having to you know just try and scramble and fill fill a roster that has these amount of flaws yeah I think I think he's paying for the sins of some of his past drafts like this is the contract year for Brett Veach's first draft class and one his first pick ever is not here not even sure he's in the league or if he's in the league he's on a practice squad Breland speaks um Derek Nottie is having a fine he might be having his worst career he might be having his worst season uh as a chief and it's not that he's been bad he just hasn't been what he's normally been uh Dorian O'Daniel is a is he, he's a special teams only player that is being his job's being saved by the special teams coordinator. So this is a group that's supposed to be in their contract year contract year as the late, great, wonderful Trez Paler used to say the contract year is undefeated. None of these guys are really, there's not, they don't have any guys playing for a contract right now. They're not having a career year and the talent wasn't good. I mean, Derek not is a two down player. So you're seeing, you know, they're seeing some holes and some flaws in some of their drafts. It took until last week for, you know, Juan Thornhill to see the field at the same clip. He was his rookie year and kind of be that same guy. And there's a lot of questions you got to have. So yeah, it would be really nice to have a defensive end that was capable right now. You know, it'd be really nice if Brian speaks had turned into a solid rotational piece. You know, it would have been nice if Dorian O'Daniel would have been a decent will linebacker on top of a special teams player. You know, so they, you know, they're, they've really missed on a lot of players, you know, early on in the process. And they've given up a lot of draft capital too with, you know, the Frank Clark and the Orlando Brown moves. So it's, it's, it's such a weird, the Brett Beach drafts are, are bizarre, man. I don't completely understand the process entirely all the time, you know, and 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 positional value too. I mean, you know. Okay. So that's one thing I wanted to ask you about is, it's, it's one thing to miss. If you have a good process and you just miss on a player, I'm okay with that. If they would have drafted Christian Fulton instead of Clyde Edwards-Alaire and said, we're going we're gonna to draft yeah. a more valuable position, and, and let's say Christian Fulton just wasn't good. I, okay, you, you tried. Good process, bad results. I, I think I see, I see a lot of and, – and a guy that started our website, Patrick Brennan, um, very Love analytically Patrick. minded. Yeah. Patrick is outstanding. He talks a lot about the Chiefs being – sort of analytically advanced and the fact that they pass the ball a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, I look at everything else they do. They don't, they're not very aggressive. 
on fourth down. They kick way too many field goals. They punt too often. They drafted a running back in the first round. He drafted a two-down linebacker with your second pick most recently. Nothing else they do seems to suggest they're analytically minded at all. And I don't want to uh, go down this rabbit hole and imply that the organization not being analytically minded is hurting Eric Bieniemy in interviews. But it just seems like when you have Patrick Mahomes in this offense and one of the most brilliant offensive minds in NFL history, like, can we be more analytically minded? I tweeted the other day, I said, one of these days the Chiefs will play by the same set of rules as everybody else and stop putting themselves in bad positions unnecessarily. Like, every other team, I, and Ken, I don't know if you saw this, in the first game against Cleveland, Cleveland went for it on their opening drive. The Chiefs come off the field, kick a field goal, and I swear to God, Mahomes and Reed are going back and forth, and Mahomes points the Cleveland bench. Like, they got to go for it. Come on, Dad, I want to go out and play. Like, what, <laughs> what the heck? My friends are all outside playing. My friends are going for it on fourth down. Do you think that, like, do you think that there's an organizational, like, they're missing something with the analytics? Because, again, drafting a running back in the first round was so arrogant that it almost, it almost fear infuriates me the process more than the result. Yeah, um, it's a big question, and it's a big philosophical one. And I think, I, I, I don't, I don't think that they are analytically in the dark ages. I will say that I think there's probably more to their process than they probably get credit for. I know some of the fourth down decisions probably don't look the best all the time. One of the rationalizations you can think about is like the Chiefs are always the hunted, so they feel like they're putting like they feel like their presence on the field puts pressure on teams enough to make some mistakes that they're not going to. And so sometimes they might be a little bit more conservative in some of those fourth down decisions. I don't necessarily always agree with it. I think you have the best player in the world. I think you can trust him to get two yards anytime. Um, but I do think there are some situations for sure where they are definitely behind the eight ball with some of their, you know, their, I think the roster decisions are questionable with, you know, some of their usage of athletic testing, you know, it, 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 sometimes they don't, they just don't care, uh, you know, if what the athletic profile is of some of these guys. And I think they try to use guys in ways or, or value things in ways that they shouldn't. Um, they spent, all, I mean, they've spent, Two, they've spent three top 100 picks in the last four years at linebacker, two second round picks at linebacker, including two second round picks at linebacker. They had the fifth most expensive linebacker in football contractually this year. And it's one of the worst position groups in football. You know, they have one of the worst linebacking cores in football. And I would argue that linebackers are the running back of, of the defense. And so you look at some of those decisions and, you know, you look at, I mean, even like, I mean, uh, we'll talk about Derek Nott. He's one of the worst athletes. He's a very defined skill set that's not going to generate a ton of pressure affecting the quarterback. There's, there are definitely some old school minded mentalities with how they operate that still haven't completely been taken over by some of the other stuff. But I do know that like Andy's more analytically, analytically minded in some things than you'll give, like some people might give him credit for. I'm not saying Veach is in the dark ages either, but I also, there are some fundamental things that I would just do a little bit differently and maybe try to, you know, go after some of these higher profile positions with some of the draft capital that they have. And to his credit, I will say to his credit, look at the two, the three big moves that the chiefs have made with their first round draft picks, edge rusher, tackle quarterback. 
I mean, we got to give him credit there. It almost feels backwards in spots with some of the, like the picks that he's hit on. Like you hit on a luxurious Sneed, at least it seems that way. Mm-hmm. And then you get so they whatever. He, yeah. Hey, look, a fourth, a fourth round pick doing what he's done. Even oh, yeah. if he's a little bit, not as good as he's been, you know, last year take it 100 10 out of 10 times and then you get a lottery ticket in turk wharton who has turned into a, a really good rotational player you know mm-hmm. considering the, the value there but then you have you know you spend high draft capital on nick bolton and clyde edwards alaire mccall hardman you know uh, willie gay i think remains to be seen just because he hasn't been healthy but it, it feels it's weird that they have hit more it feels like on either late round picks or mm-hmm. udfa types than when you feel like you you almost have a you have an almost an automatic chance of hitting on somebody like it. that man, I, the, some of the stuff I really like about Brett, about Brett Veach is I think he does a lot of good stuff with day three picks. I think he does an outstanding job and is ahead of the curve with undrafted free agents. And so he gives himself, himself a lot of lottery tickets on the back end. You know, I think, you know, he's really done a good job of identifying those undrafted free agents and, and finding good value on day three. I mean, you know, some of his best hits are day three picks which is why I wish he would keep more, <laughs> you know, he, you know, they, they wind up in the draft every year with five or six, sometimes seven picks. And I would love for them to have a few more, you know, day three swings because he's proven to find some decent value in some of those spots too. So it's weird. Cause first round, you know, first round, second round, third round, it's maybe not positional value is not the same that, you know, some of us would, you know, look at and, and, but then he goes around and he hits on some of these day three guys. It's, 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 it's a lot is perplexing about everything. I don't want to, I hate comparing football and baseball GMs because they're, they're so different. Um, yeah. Dayton Moore would never in a million years. He let's be honest when Bobby Witt Jr.'s time comes up, even if he has Patrick Mahomes in baseball bye, go have fun in New York or LA, like he's gone. There's, there's just no shot that Dayton Moore can give a contract like that to Bobby Witt Jr. because of the way the leagues are structured. Um, I do think that Brett Veach and Dayton Moore have a similar story. Now, I, I know Dayton Moore's not a GM anymore. Let's play along here. A similar-ish story in the fact that they both won the championship. They both made a couple moves that are so right – that they are definitely going to keep their job. And I am by no means like I am. I laugh at the people who are like fire Veach or we need to start, you know, looking at Veach has Veach made mistakes. Absolutely. Is Veach on a hot seat? No, I don't think he should be for the next couple of years. I think, I think you should get to see this play out for a while, but a lot of Veach's moves after Mahomes have missed. And I think it's fair to say okay you've had three years as gm it's really time to reevaluate reevaluate strategy and 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 i'm kind of uh, reiterating some stuff you've already said but if if we compare it to the to the baseball side he and dayton moore actually are kind of similar in that way where dayton moore took the team to the mountaintop and dayton moore inherited a mess of a franchise like at least brett veach got to step in after john dorsey had kind of restabilized things even if they were in cap hell they at least had a roster. They had pro bowlers. They had Andy Reid when Brett Veach stepped in. Dayton Moore inherited a mess, but he took the team to the mountaintop and then also was <laughs> sort of the reason that they started to backslide. Similarly, I think we can pin a lot of the team's problems this year on moves that Brett Veach did and didn't make. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I think there are some, there's some things about them that like, I, I, I think there's, there's things that fundamentally, I think they're a little bit different. Like I think Dayton Moore has been afraid to pull the trigger on some things, you know, and, and been very timid about, you know, moving some assets where Brett Veach is like all in every year to try to adjust, you know, try to make, you know, everything around his team. He's, he's just going all in every year. He's pushing his chips in like at all times, which makes some of his draft picks so confusing too, because he's not, he doesn't always take those swings there. Right. But um, I do think, yeah, fundamentally, I think there's, you know, there's things that are lacking from a roster construction perspective, from a player development perspective, from a, you know, I, I think there are definitely some holes and some gaps between, you know, that, that need to not be as big and drastic as they've been, you know? And I know, I think, I think Peyton, I, you know, I think, you know, Dayton's paid for some of the sins earlier and, 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 but he's now also, you know, I think they came back in a big way organizationally with some of their, you know, the, the draft with all the arms and Bobby and, and, you know, getting, you know, and figure, I mean, honestly, I think you got to give credit organizationally to what they did to, to make these improvements with, within the, you know, the, the hitting development, you know, like, I mean, I think, I don't know if Dayton was a hundred percent involved with that necessarily, but like, I think the decisions to acknowledge some of those issues there, I think getting, you know, Nick Prado and, and, and and MJ Melendez back on track the way that they have like I think there's a lot of there's a lot there to give them credit for too but at the same time there was a gap there that you wish they had more now especially with some of the capital that they had so I think that's where like for me that's where the comparison comes there is a lull here because of some some mistakes that were made well let's talk a little baseball um you mentioned that Prado, Melendez, Witt are, have kind of found their way, and they're, and they're getting closer to the big leagues. Um, we know, obviously, you're, you're a big Royals fan, uh, even though you don't necessarily write about them. You're, I think I would consider you to be a bigger, more in-touch Royals fan than the average Royals fan. Um, tell me how excited you are for this team in 2022 because they're kind of on their, on their verge of your Mahomes is coming. Like, we sat there – what Bobby Witt Jr. did in Double A Triple A this year reminds—I mean, not really reminds me of—but you, you can loosely compare it to all of the hype Patrick Mahomes was getting in practice in 2017. Now the that year is coming, and, and in baseball, it takes a little longer to transition. It's not a great comparison here, but how excited are you for 2022 as a Royals fan? Are you are you expecting them to do something big this year, this off season? Are you expecting all the kids to be up right away? Like, are you, are you ready or are you kind of under the impression it's going to be one more year? I, oh, I'm all over the place. Like I'm a little timid because like, it felt like there's, you know, some guys that the chiefs or not the chiefs, the Royals kind of have under contract for this next year that underperformed. And like, I'm looking from a roster construction perspective. I'm so curious how they're going to fit these young guys in and who stays, who goes like, it feels like there's, you know, they're, they got the, the Hunter Dozier situation. <laughs> the Carlos Santana situation. Like I haven't necessarily focused myself on the prospects yet, even though I'm geeked out about all of them because it still feels like there's just like so many unanswered questions, like even like a wit question too. Like, I think I, I think I DM Joel a couple of months Dude, ago yeah. with like an existential crisis of what they're going to do with all these talented shortstops because the, you know, like they've got like, I mean, they've got three. And so like, are you going to, you're going to move Bobby Witt to third. You're going to, what, what do you do with Doge? Like, 
there's just so many like un, there's so much unsettled about the roster construction that I haven't like been able to really even like process 2022 if that makes sense. But at this like honestly, hot stove is like hot stove season is like one of my favorite times of year, and I can't wait to see if the Chiefs or the, I keep saying the Chiefs. I'm so used to saying the Chiefs. It's excited to be talking about the Royals. Um, it's it, I'm curious to see if you know if they're gonna move some of these assets around and you know. Who stays? Who goes? Do they, you know, do they just pull the plug on on the Hunter Dozier experience, you know, or what? What do they do there, you know? So I, I'm unsettled. I, I'm very uneasy, very unsettled, and that's how I feel. And I can't even really think about, you know, the prospects of of Bobby, MJ, and Prado entirely until like there's resolution about how they're going to get integrated into a situation where it feels like there's log jams and there's feel and it feels like that. Like, I don't want to give up on all these guys either. Like, that's where it's weird. It feels like I don't want to say that there's a wealth of talent or a good deep pool of talent, but I also don't want to say that either. I have optimism for some of these guys too. You know, like a Dozier, like I still have a little hope. It's weird. I, I, I'm all over the place, man. I, it's, it's, I, can't, I can't completely put it together. What they can't do is like in my opinion is be like half in half out because that's where like like what you just said is is entirely true i still want to get another look at these guys but i also want to get a look at the kids like you need to make a decision they, they're gonna have to make a decision this offseason like you need to be in or out and i'm okay with either but what i'm afraid is that because i'm the same way can't i feel the same way like i'm not ready to give up on dozier yet i'm not ready to give up on benintendi or wit in any capacity but, like, also, if you don't add to the team, they're going to suck. If you don't move guys, you're going to suck next year again. It's like you you, you got to pick one. You, you have to be in or out. And what I'm afraid is that the Royals are going to look at their roster and be like us. Uh, so like, let's just one more year. Let's see what we got in the next offseason, right? And it's just going to suck in 2022. But I am, I'm the same way. Like, with Ben Benintendi, I'm like, I still think – you can maximize his contract. You can get good value out of Benintendi if he hits. Hunter Dozier, I actually think, is is probably going to be better than people think. And it's just like, can you really afford to to find out, though? Like, have you put yourself in a position to find out? Well, I think that's the – that, that all of these questions is the existential crisis that I think a lot of Royals fans are experiencing right now. It's how – like, what is what is 2022 and what what is the definition of 2022 and – you know, I like, I think one thing, like personally, I would just, I'd trade wit, <laughs> but I know like I I've given up on the idea of them trading wit <laughs> because like Dayton Moore just, I mean, he just doesn't do that. And well, I know he's, you know, maybe, maybe his, you know, I, I think he still has got final say on the roster. Right. I mean, like, so he's got a lot of influence over the roster. So you know, does his you know promotion really affect whether or not the Chiefs or the Royals might consider? I keep doing it. Might consider moving on from it because that's the one that makes the most sense to me. Like I would rather kind of like I'd rather see what you can get for him and and go from there. And and it sucks for Wit because I think there's probably a lot of loyalty. They want him to be part of the you know the hit the tail end of his career in Kansas City to be part of the wave and be part of when the wave is good. And that's where a lot of that emotional, you know, uh, equity that, you know, Dayton Moore's built up within, you know, that organization with the people that play for him. 
I, you know, like there's, there is something to be said about that culture. So like, God, it's so, it's going to be hard. Like all of it, it's just, I'm, I'm not, I don't think anybody's going to be, here's the truth. I don't think anybody's going to be happy with what the Royals do and it might work and it might not, but I don't think anybody actually be happy with it. <laughs> that is like the most Royals thing ever. <laughs> hey, we traded for James Shields. Awesome. What'd we give up? You did what? <laughs> it's like, it's like, great. It's like, just, we cut off our nose despite our face. And like you said, we made this group of people happy and pissed off everybody else over here. When it it's felt like, like, here's the thing. It felt like this, well, well, this is a, this is a, here is a Dayton Moore, Brett Veach uh, kind of analogy. A lot of people felt like they gave up a lot for James Shields. Like everyone acknowledged that James Shields was good. Everybody, but they, you know, everybody felt like they gave up a lot for him. Then no way Davis was going to turn out what he was going to be. But um, I think a lot of people, you know, like it, it felt a little rich. Like it felt, you know, it felt a little rich for what they gave up for Frank Clark. And I think, you know, in a, you know, you look at the long-term aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been rough, but people don't credit him for what he did to turn that culture around. People don't credit him for, I mean, I think he played, you know, better than a lot of people. I, I know PFF slanders him every, every week, but I think he's, I think he's played a lot better. And I, there's, there's more to that in that, that culture aspect than people are ever going to know. So um, yeah, I, the, the, he really turned that defense around. So like, I, it's, it, you know, I, there's, there's, there's some correlation there too. I, I never, I, I'm rarely just like geeked out about all the moves. Like I, Signing Michael A. Taylor to a two, yay! I guess like let's just settle for great defense and you know light hitting for the next two years of a guy in his thirties. You know, I yeah. It, it this applies. This applies to baseball and football. The best defense is a good offense. <laughs> exactly. Score everybody, and doesn't matter how many points you give up because you should well, score. What does uh? What does Jacob Morley say? Score hundred. Hashtag like, score one hundred, man. Score one hundred. Yeah, I mean, like I don't know, like. And I get wanting to have a steady defensive center fielder, but I don't know. Like some of the bats aren't hit. Like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of bats that are hitting fine if you're, or you, you you think will hit fine, but there's also not a guy that's, you know, there's not a ton of just, you know, guys that are going to be, you know, how many, how many dudes over, you know, 110 OPS are they going to have this year? You know, I don't know. Like that's, that, that's a, <laughs> we'll the, the see. Michael are they, yeah. Are you log jamming average? Are you log jamming for average? And what's the value of just being average at certain positions? You know what I'm saying? Like that's that's something I feel with some of the Royals roster construction questions here. That's actually a good point. That is. I mean, the, the Michael A. Taylor signing just made too much sense because it just screamed, we don't have a center field prospect or someone that we want to run out there in center field every day. And we are not going to go and spend a lot of money in free agencies going get one of these center fielders that's going to be out there and we're not going to make a trade. So ergo, you just bring back Michael A. Taylor, who has been, I mean, he was one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball and the Royals have said it repeatedly. They are okay having a defense first only center fielder because of how much it actually does matter at Gotham Stadium. Right. And I mean, until Nikki became Nikki like it was a defense only shortstop and like there's a lot of value in him too but like if Nikki regresses <laughs> you know there's just uh, there's like there's just a lot of questions for me and the the fantasy baseball player in me the video game baseball player in me is like you know try to 
try a guy like Mondi out in center and maybe that maybe that gets another one of those potentially elite bats out there <laughs> like there's just uh, I don't know it's gonna be interesting I have a question I, I just okay. thought about I, I just thought about this have we ever seen Daniel Sorensen and Ryan O'Hearn in the same room <laughs> we know for a fact that those players are different people do we do we know that for sure have you ever seen <laughs> uh mm, that's a good question it's a good question they they uh they have very similar characteristics they are kind of the bane of factions of of fandoms experiences i know that so i mean at at least we have seen daniel Sorensen make it like i think he's made one more play in his career than ryan o'hearn has done anything net positive yeah, but Ryan O'Hearn hasn't been in a high leverage situation, like a legit one where this team is actually in contention in his entire career, has he? Like that, ugh, I'm, try, I'm not trying to slander the Royals, but man, like we have, you know, like some of these things that we're talking about, they don't matter until they start, you know, winning. But okay, Ryan, so O'Hearn, Ryan O'Hearn's development is not one of them. <laughs> the, the Daniel Sorensen thing, like as I, I, I joke about that, that's something it seems like that was such a Royals move for them to play Daniel Sorensen the entire game against Buffalo. It's like we're going to wait until it is like beyond obvious before we make a move here. It's like the classic Ned Yost. Well, you got to wait two weeks. It's like, well, you wait two weeks and now Daniel Sorensen is getting routed up by Dawson Knox on Sunday. Hey, Dawson Knox is good, man. What are you Stop saying? It. Okay. I mean, he might be good, but that was like, Daniel Swordson ran out of bounds voluntarily. It's like he, he gave he gave up on that play. Yeah, but it's like it's like that that move was classic. That reminded me so much of a Royals move because I was at that game. I thought this is very much something the Royals would do. It's like we can all see that it's a problem, and we're not going to fix it because that's the game plan. Like I I would rather I don't know if if I'm a coach and I'm watching Daniel Swordson or if I'm watching Ryan O'Hearn. Again, probably the same person. If I'm watching this, I'm not going to put up with it for four and five and six weeks. It's like, hey, that's really bad. We're going to put in, uh, hey, Tommy, do you know how to play safety? It's like somebody else go out there and see if you can. It's like, dude, it's like from remember the Titans. It's like, hey, just go out there and cover number 48. He's killing us. It's like, I haven't practiced the defense. It doesn't matter. Go cover 48. It's like, try something. Throw something out there. See if it works. That Daniel Sorensen move was so very Royals. It hurt me in my soul watching it happen. I think Spags has a little bit of net in him. 100%. Like, that is standing. And it's like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to compare it. It's like, um, because like, I, here's like, I don't think, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it is like the post world series Royals where they just kept the band together and it wasn't enough. Maybe that is a good analogy. I'll, let's go with that. They kept the band. They largely kept the band together uh, as much as they could. And well, I mean, they didn't spend any money, but you know, like they, they, they weren't moving assets. They weren't, you know, like it didn't seem like they, you know, they kind of held on to some guys and um, they weren't really competitive at the end, but like I, they, they were loyal to a fault to that core. And they probably could have moved some guys and maybe got a few more, more prospects in a couple spots here and there. Um, there were probably some more opportunities. They let that group ride out together, you know, in a year where they weren't actually, uh, they weren't actually really in contention. I think the, I think the defense, the chief fence has been loyal to a fault. I think Spags has been loyal to a fault to some of the guys that helped him achieve what they did in 2019, but 
football is a lot different. This is two years removed from a Super Bowl. Some of these guys are in their 30. Some of the core of that Super Bowl team, Anthony Hitchens and, you know, Tyron Matthew, Dan Sorensen, Frank Clark, all these guys are older. They're 28 and older. And the only one that's 28 is Frank Clark. So this is a, this is a core that like some of these guys were going to be here regardless, but it, this is an aging core with a lot of trust and that, that trust hasn't been rewarded with, with performance. And I think that's the situation with Dan Sorensen to a T is, you know, they're, they're rolling with the known, they're rolling with the guy that, you know, that they, that they had a lot of, you know, they won a Super Bowl with, and there's more talent behind them. And, that, and that's boy in the NFL that that's more magnified because guys get old quick. You brought up Tyron. Oh, go ahead, Joel. Uh, I was going to just, because I need to get this take off real quick. Um, what hurts your soul more watching the Royals run out Hunter Dozier every single day to pick a position where he's terrible or watching the chiefs linebackers try and cover anybody in the flat. Well, I can't watch the Royals because of Bowie's. <laughs> hashtag always game hashtag always game Don't always game sorry what was what was the chiefs option again i didn't know uh, it was watching any it, watching any chiefs linebacker try and cover a running back in the flat it's it's excruciating there's your there's your roster construction question because like i it, hopefully willie gay's athleticism can show up and he can get into the flat a little bit better but there's a lot of there's a lot of stiffness in that linebacking core and Again, Spags prioritizes stopping the run. You know, we're gonna we're gonna lead Al Cities Escobar is gonna lead off no matter what because it just makes sense, uh, right? Uh, and uh, and the Chiefs are gonna they're gonna spend a lot on on linebackers to try to stop the run. <laughs> there's another, I thought about, there's another I thought about singling out a linebacker Ben Neiman, but uh, mm. but I realized it was just any of them. Like it doesn't matter who's out there. It's they're just, all yeah. they all struggle, man. I mean. Hopefully Willie Gay has shown a little bit of ability when he's at full strength to cover, but there's a, that's just a fundamental issue. And I, that's why I like, I just don't know why you keep adding assets that don't fix the specific problem of being able to cover at the second level. Cause like, it's so valuable in this game and the good linebackers can cover. And that's a really valuable asset, you know, earning the right to rush the passer by stopping the run is, I mean, they're letting people open in the flat all day, you know? So I don't know. I have a second question now as it relates to the linebackers, have we ever seen Dorian O'Daniel and Edward Olivares in the same room? <laughs> well, these are the guys that the fans are clamoring for, because again, I'm the type of guy, if I watched Ben Neiman, let Ricky seals Jones run past him. You don't get to play anymore. Hey, Dorian, do you think you could do better than that? Ooh, it. Jump I, in because I think have- fans are clamoring for it. And the coaches are like, it's not happening. Quit the org- asking. That, that's the best. Now, the organization is telling you exactly what they think of those players. Running on Edward Olivares up and down I-29 tells you exactly what, they, what you need to know. He's not really part of their developmental. They want to see what he can do. They like what, he, what he's done in AAA. But snap count tells the story in football. And trips on I-29 tells the story of a mid-20s prospect. I mean, Dorian O'Daniel, I, I, I'll just say this. There is not a lot of confidence that he can execute the defense. They put him in one very specific role in his very limited snaps defensively the last few years. One thing, do one thing. You can take with that what you want. But lack of confidence, man. It's crazy to me because it's like, okay, 
I get it because I'm a coach. I get it. I understand lack of confidence. I understand identifying, hey, Anthony Hitchens is our guy, and he may have his flaws, but what he brings to the table is more valuable consistently than a wild card who's going to make some big plays and bust a lot. Here's my thing with Ben Neiman. He is so bad that I don't think <laughs> – I don't think you can, like, put him on the field and not think – honest to God, like, if you, if you just told me, hey – we're going to put Ben Neiman on the field unless you, Kent Swanson, think Dorian O'Daniel might do a better job on this play. The known commodity for me and Ben Neiman no longer outweighs the unknown in Dorian O'Daniel because there's still the chance Ben Neiman gives up the 80-yard touchdown play to Ricky Seals-Jones, whereas at least Dorian O'Daniel, you can't get worse than that. There isn't a worse. And so, therefore, you may, like, in my opinion, you may as well run somebody else out there just see what happens. If it gets if it, if it's bad, you already knew it was going to be bad. Okay, so so what? Next play, Ben, you're back out there, and we'll deal with whatever the positive is that Ben Neiman presents to a defense. I think this is where like football and baseball get a little different because like yeah, if you Ben, if you give Ben Neiman an at bat, you give Dorian O'Daniel an at bat, or if you give him each 100 at bats, the outcome might be different. But this isn't, you know, this isn't a one on one game. You know, this isn't a pitcher versus hitter game. Um, it, there's there there are a lot of intangibles about the game of football that and like we can speak on like I think there are some I think there's value in analytics in football but I think there are some serious fundamental flaws in how some things are communicated in the game of football when it comes to um you know the some of the you know I, there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of issues I think with how statistics are presented I think like PFF grades are not remotely a representation of of any value of a player frankly because of the criteria and the process they use it's really hard for you know the dots are cool and some of the game tracking is really cool but until the dots can identify the coverage I'm not really gonna take a ton of value in some of that stuff either so like there's a lot of layers to that with Ben Neiman versus Dorian O'Daniel, 11 guys are relying on each other to communicate, to be in the right position. Um, small mistakes being late to certain parts of the field can really affect you know, the structure integrity of the entire defense. Guys have to do their job. They have to communicate to the front end, the back end of the defense. And unfortunately, Ben Neiman's very capable of doing a lot of those things. And so the coaching staff trusts him to get people lined up to be in the right spot. He's not going to make the tackle all the time, but but the, the coach would rather pray to God he does enough to slow it down and the, the, they're rallying to the football with the 10 other guys. There's a lot of hope that, you know, getting guys in the right position is more valuable because Dorian O'Daniel, I'm, frankly, is not the guy that's, he's not going to ever wear the green dot on the helmet. He's not going to be the guy picking stuff up on the field, the small adjustments that need to be make, made on any given play. There's a lot of thinking fast, and that's where that guy like Ben Neiman is valuable. And honestly, I think that's where Dan Sorensen and a lot of stuff, some of the pre-snap stuff was really valuable to, you know, the Chiefs and, and, and to where Spags just was willing to, to live with some of that. I think Juan Thornhill does it just fine. He's mentally fine, but, you know. But I think that's the point. It's Some of that stuff is super valuable, and it's a little bit different than some of those, you know, one-on-one -on -one matchups you're going to see pitcher hitter where, you know, the talent – I think I think I think Dorian O'Daniel is a great athlete. The athleticism is far from the issue, and why he's not playing makes sense. And, and and like you said, it's it's obviously very different. So if you're trying to compare them a little bit, that's just 
that's kind of the comparison that came to my head is it's the guy the fans are clamoring for. Yeah. Like fans have identified this sucks. Can we try something else? Yeah. And, and I do think um, Sean Barber gives Carrington Harrison crap all the time about he's like, yeah, you're watching the stat, the stat line. I'm watching the all 22. He's like, you come over to my house. If Sean Barber invite him over. You can watch the all 22 and it gives him crap. And it is, it is hilarious. Their banter back and forth. But mm. I, I do understand even if I don't understand what is going on, I understand there are things going on. I do think it's funny how sometimes fans are looking at something and they go, Hey, we want to try this. And the coaching staff, like you said, is telling you, no, it's not happening. Edward Olivares isn't going to start. Dorian O'Daniel's not going to get snaps and the fans are just continue to clamor. And even I'm, I'm guilty of that sometimes. Like I'm guilty of like, I have no idea what you're seeing in this player that could be that bad that this other player couldn't do. Um, but that's part of not being there every day. You Man, said, I, go I'm ahead. Sorry. I was, you know, like, and there's a layer, there's a big layer to, <laughs> you know, we can, we can try to break down, you know, traits and we can try to break down X's and O's as best as we can. But, you know, even on plays that we're breaking down in football, for instance, there are three different play calls or three different adjustments and three different route adjustments that the receivers could have made based on coverage and stuff like that. So, like, there's so many factors that, you know, us not being you know, like that. There's there's only so much that we're all going to be able to do, you know, communicating a prospect's traits and, you know, or, um, you know, what we're seeing or what some of the numbers are telling. But there are. People don't, I, I, we, I do think we devalue some of the emotional side, some of the emotional data, some of the emotional, um, you know, some of the locker room dynamics and some of the personality dynamics and all that kind of stuff, because it's cliche, but these guys really are human too. And so it's, it's weird trying to balance all that stuff with all the wealth of, you know, data points that we're able to collect and analyze, you know, it's, it's all encompassing and, we probably don't value enough of the cultural cultural side that like, for instance, like data Dayton's considered behind the eight ball, you know, analytically for a long time, but man, I tell you what the culture, there is, there's something to be said about culture and managing personalities because it is super valuable and you can't just, you, you, there's a lot to that too, you know? And I mean, any, but you, you've, you've been in, you've been in a, you've been in a dugout, you've been in a locker room, you, you got it, you get it. I mean, there's, there's, there are some dynamics there that matter. You said you had some prospect questions for us. We've been at it for a while. Do you want to ask us a couple questions? Yeah, I am. I am curious about a couple things, and it's more about it's more about. I don't want to say asset management because we're going to value these guys, but like, let's talk. I want to, I want to ask specifically about MJ. I'm very curious. Like, do you build a plan for him that he you know to get or or is he the guy that you're using to to try to move on you know is he a guy that you're you're trying to you're trying to you know maybe you maybe get a veteran arm which i'm going to ask in a second like what do you do like what's the plan for mj like and what would you do or what do, well, actually more, i'm more interested in what you think the royals are going to do with mj okay so let me let me flip this and put this in per, football perspective view let's say that noah gray was showing flashes of being the next travis kelsey the Chiefs obviously are not moving Travis Kelsey. Right. He's going to be there. Right. He may be aging. He's not slowing down much, but he may be aging. He's not going anywhere. Noah Gray looks to be the next Travis Kelsey-ish type of thing, if not that good, pretty close. And the defense still sucks bad. Do you keep Noah Gray on the roster and let the offense cook or do you move Noah Gray to try to help out the defense on the other side of the ball? What would so, you do? I would keep him. I would figure out 
a new position. Boom. But, but this comes back to my fundamental question because it feels like he's log jammed everywhere. Like, I feel like you've got, like, you got to justify so many guys to figure out how to make him work. And so, like, that's what's, like, that's what's, it's, I'll be honest. I, I, Joel, I had an existential crisis about shortstop and, and I did about MJ too. Like, this is the thing, this is the thing that scares me. It's like, how do you make all of this make sense? How does that, this plan formulate? Because I really want to hold on to him. Yeah, and I, I, I do too. It's going to be interesting, and I think a lot of it might come down to, okay, Salvador Perez is on the other side of 30. How much do they want him to catch moving forward? Yeah. Like, how many games do you want him to catch, and how much do you want him to be a DH so he can continue to hit all of these homers to try and continue the Hall of Fame conversation that kind of came out of nowhere this year? Like, do you want him to just keep having the getting the hitting counting stats and see how things roll out? Because I think MJ is athletic enough and good enough behind the plate to play catcher at the big league level every day. He's also shown he can play a little third. He's probably athletic enough to move him to a corner outfield spot if you really want to go crazy. I do. Eventually, they're they're going to they're going to find a spot for him. And you could say the same thing about Nick Prado. He's an elite defender at first base, but there's a good chance we're probably going to see him with an outfield glove playing right field every once in a while because. You have Vinny Pasquantino who can come up and be first base in DH as well. Like there's, they have all of these dudes that are coming at once that all have a place in the big leagues at some point in 2022. And now it's just putting the pieces together. I'm just curious about the developmental plan, because if they're going to try to jerk some of these guys around, make them play a bunch of positions, that's what makes it interesting to me. It's, you know, are, are we going to ask Nick Prado as he continues to grow, develop and, you know, kind of, put the final touches on his minor league career before we call him up. Are we going to ask him to play first right field? You know, are we going to ask MJ to play catcher third first? The, the one quarter? thing I will say when it comes to Prado is moving him to right field. will take some of the pressure off his back right away. Yeah. Because he, he's probably, he's going to hit, but I don't know if he's going to hit for the, the same significant power that we saw this year at first base. And if he's playing first base, you can look at a guy like, uh, like Evan white for the Seattle Mariners, where it's an elite defender at first, but, what how much value does an elite defender have at first versus a dude that you can put in the middle of your order with some thumb like at least if he's playing right field if he's providing enough defensive value and he's hitting enough like it takes a ton of pressure off of him i think if they put him at first base every day and he struggles early it's gonna look pretty bad i think the thing that is interesting for me though is like you got dozier you got benintendi you got wit <laughs> you gotta i just I, you got to try to feel like it does feel like I, I would. I just wonder if you reduce the log jam a little bit with somebody like what? Like you can, you can probably make some pieces fit a little bit easier. And maybe, you know, maybe this thing I'm curious about is a veteran arm. The other thing is, is like, you know, I think there's probably a value in having a more veteran arm, a guy that's going to eat up a lot more innings because I think the innings issue with some of these younger arms, like you hope that they can stretch out a little bit more this year and be consistent enough or more consistent this year stretched out, but it kind of feels like they need another veteran arm. And like, is, and like, who's the guy, who are you moving to try to go grab, you know, maybe a, a, a higher end of the rotation type guy that can, you know, get you 200 innings. That's that, that is the question is like, who, who do you want to move? It's, it's, it's want to, but <laughs> right. It's, it's kind of like with the Royals is you have so <laughs> Kind of like we were talking about earlier, there's guys you don't want to move on from yet. There's guys you want to get a look at. And it's kind of like the guys that you could potentially move, you're not really good enough at any one spot 
to justify moving someone to go fix it's about cutting off your nose despite your face you need offense you need guys that can that can mash in the middle of the lineup so you're going to trade your one of your best hitting prospects probably your second best hitting prospect to go fill another void like at what point do you just kind of admit that hey we need all of these hitters in the lineup because we don't score nearly enough runs and then we'll let all these young pitchers we invested in you know so I agree with you. And, and the question is, like you said, which one do you move? Because Nick Prado is probably your first baseman of the future. MJ Melendez is probably too valuable to move now. Like he's been so good. It's like, yes, what? like he, he <laughs> almost like, and he didn't just have a renaissance to make him trade worthy. He hit so well. He's like almost untradeable. I hit so well. This like, is, these are, it, it's hard to, to get to that level. Um, they're so good. I think, they're- they're good problems. They're great problems. But it, it also going to create a weird, a weird lineup in the big leagues where I think they have enough depth that if you can package an Austin Cox, a Jonathan Heasley, um, and start to piece some of these mid-tier level prospects, a Michael Massey, maybe a Vinny Pasquantino, you start to package some of these guys together, and you could come up with a with a package that goes and gets a. I've seen the name Chris Bassett from Oakland thrown around like. You could get a guy like that, but if you're going to, if you want a, you know, I don't want to use Max Scherzer because he's a free agent, but like if you want a guy, if you want a James Shields type, it's going to have to be MJ Melendez. There's no way around it. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to trade Melendez, then the next grouping of guys you're talking about is Alec Marsh is hurt, but Alec Marsh could Asa Lacey be an option with a really good fall league? Could you move a guy like Austin Cox, even though his 2021 season was just pretty good? Um, I, I think they have, they have built themselves up enough depth. But the Royals have also talked about, we want to continue to build depth for longevity. We don't want to just go all out for a few years and have to do this all over again. So it'd be hypocritical of them to trade their depth for one guy as well, where I do think it's a really weird situation to be in which is why I think you pony up the money and you just go spend it in free agency. I think they're caught between quote unquote windows. And I don't think there's been a window, but I think there's like a core of play. They're caught between cores. Maybe like they, I think they're kind of just stuck between cores a little bit. And that's where this year is going to be weird because like we all want them to go out and be more competitive this year. But the truth of the matter is like the arms probably aren't there. As current, like I don't think the arms are all there yet. I think you know they're gonna continue to grow and build. You're gonna get more innings out of them. You're gonna get more consistency out of them this year. I don't disagree with that, but is that enough? Like, is that going to be enough? And you know, I I think they'll figure things out with with the with the depth of you know you, you know the the depth of position players they have. It breaks my brain to kind of figure out exactly how that works where I'm happy. Cause like, I'm going to, I think it's the same thing. Like there's going to be decisions made about like the roster construction that I'm not going to be happy about. Like I'm going to be disappointed that we're not giving Hunter Dozier a chance or we're having to admit fault on Hunter Dozier, you know, or it's going to be, we gotta, we're going to, you know, we'll see when MJ gets up or something like that. So like, there's going to be some disappointment, like, I'm just going to be disappointed with something and I'm just going to hope to God it works out, you know? No, I, I agree a hundred percent. That's why I think it's, it's, it's sort of a pivotal off season for them, which is why I'm, I'm in favor of, of ponying up the cash, but it's not yeah. my money and I don't get to other people's money. So they got to save money for the new stadium. Right. Um, 
I do have one like I I uh I do have one quick question. Um I'm I'm sorry, I, I don't know if this is kind of flipped on its head, but how did you feel about the 2021 draft? Because it felt like from a baseball like some of the some of the you know some of the prospect ranking systems it looked like they were going to try to maybe go you know it it looked like they might be trying to go um under slot you know with mazzucato and it just seems like maybe they didn't get the best value with kaderna is that is that how you say it i got it right it just you know i was trying to explain it to like matt and craig who are not into baseball at all and it seemed like it was a little bit underwhelming in totality, maybe not like drastic, but just, eh, you know, how did you guys feel about it? Our reactions were like, uh, okay, <laughs> well, let's see what happens. Been there a lot with beach drafts. <laughs> yeah. Well, and part of it too. So we compare the under slot deal like they did. We compare that to trading down in football. So like, let's imagine this year, the yeah. chiefs had had the, more like probably the 14th pick in the draft and you had a serviceable to good defensive end. Um, I, I, I don't follow the draft enough to, to put a name on this type of player. Um, you know, a decent pass pass rushing defensive end whose ceiling wasn't, you know, yeah. enormous, but probably could have stepped in and play started at defensive end opposite of Clark, allowing you to leave Chris Jones in the middle. That's kind of what I look at. Like, um, the Royals options were, it would, they were good, not great options. And so they traded down, even though there was a serviceable player to insert yeah. there, somebody guys, somebody that Royals would fans probably would have been excited about. And honestly, the best option probably was to trade down in hindsight. Um, it did kind of what we, without as much as Kamara Rocker wanted, like there, and there was some stuff there, like it did seem like it made a little bit more sense two days removed, but I, I just don't know. Like, it just felt like I was hoping they were going to get more out of going a little bit more under slot, I guess. And it, it didn't, you know, it didn't seem like they got the best value. And like, that's something I deal with a lot with Brett Veach is it doesn't feel like he always gets value. He's always around late. Well, and that's part of, that's part of what they did too, is that not only did they trade down, but they traded down to draft a running back and a middle linebacker. Yeah. Right. Now, one thing I do, I this is something I'm just thinking about philosophically with the Royals lately, with as much as they've developed on the hitting side. Because they did draft, they drafted a young, what's the kid's name, the local kid? Carter Jensen. Yeah. It feels like, I wonder if they feel like they know something that we don't because it felt like they knew something we didn't during this, the down year where we didn't see the minor league system. Like they kind of overhauled some stuff and things kind of changed and, you know, they completely changed how this thing is and no one really got eyes on it for a year. It feels like it does kind of feel like the Royals know something we don't a little bit with some of the, what they've learned in as far as the developmental process. And that just makes me wonder if like, maybe they, maybe they just, they, they found gems, but they didn't pay them as gems, they kind of paid him a little bit more than we would have on its face. I, I don't think you make the Mazzucato, Kaderna, and Shane Panzini picks start taking high, high school pitchers through your first four picks if you're not completely overhauling your your player development in the way that you in the way that they take pitchers. 
mm-hmm. because the Royals outside of Zach Grinke, their track record of taking high school pitchers is horrid. It's, yeah. it's not good. So you don't make that pick if you're not confident that you're going to be able to develop them. Like, I don't think, I don't, I, I think, they, they completely are changing their process if that's the case. And yeah. I want it to work out. And I think they also did it to, you have the wave of pitchers that we just saw and you have another one coming yeah. and then they have another one coming after that. So it's trying to like stagger this so that it can, you can sustain good pitching for a six, seven year stretch. Right. They got the college arms in the hopper. They probably need some, some guys coming behind them with some of the younger arms. Yep. Makes sense. That's, that's my guess. Yeah. It's just, it was interesting. I was, I was fascinated by it and, some people seem to actually like it a lot more than maybe some of the, you know, like baseball perspectives and some of that stuff did, but I've certainly just... come around on it. I, I didn't obviously like hey, Alex, we, and I, hey. Alex and I didn't love it at the time, but at the time, but now I'm like, okay, this is I what, really this, see it. this is what draft nerds do. Yes. We rationalize everything and, and get ourselves into a position where we can live with it. Like this yeah. is, the, this is the life. Sometimes I, I talk myself into the idea that it's the, they're the professionals. They know what they're doing. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes I forget that they really do mess up a lot. And so like I like part of the reason I like the draft more than I did now is I've rationalized that theory to myself to where like what Joel said is they must be they must be overhauling something. And I want to like it. I want to believe they're overhauling their pitching development because I I agree with Joel. They they if you draft three prep arms with your first three of your first four picks you better have overhauled something and in the back of my head it's like what if they don't know they're bad at it <laughs> it's like oh, yeah. here we go again like oh god like i think there, you know we we there's something to be said i think about you know they they are sometimes you can be like sometimes you're too close to the context you know like there's something to be said about all of us looking on the outside without having you know, all of the information that these guys do on a background perspective on a, you know, organizational philosophy perspective and some of that kind of stuff. And it can, you know, it sometimes context can, you know, talk, you talk yourself into a player that isn't as talented, you know, and there is something also to be said about building a roster instead of just collecting talent too. But, um, I think there's, you know, I think sometimes these guys are too close to the fire in some of the, like sometimes they just overthink these decisions at times too. A little bit of both. Well, can't, this was supposed to be like 30 minutes and we're going in almost an hour now. So I've got, I've got one more question before. And then before you ask your last question, Joel. So Kent Luther burden on his way to the university of Missouri I just got a, I just got off the phone with Las Vegas. They have set the line on the 2023 <laughs> SEC championship game, Alabama minus 13 and a half over Missouri. Are you taking Missouri to cover the 13 and a half? Or are you taking Alabama to, to cover the two touchdown spread 2023 SEC championship game? I will never bet against Nick Saban. And so I will still take him to cover. It's a big get though. Like I know people are down on I'm I'm not a Missouri guy, but I know there's a lot of people down on Eli Drinkwitz. I like him. I don't know who's uh, down. I don't know why you'd be down on Eli Drinkwitz unless you're just not paying attention to the recruiting process. Yeah, he's got a lot energy, offensive mind. I like him a lot, man. Um, and I'm I'm, I'm not a Missouri guy, but hey, that's a big get, especially when you're what three and three. Is that what they're sitting right now? 
Did you see the way he threw? He picks up the Alabama and the Georgia hats. I went, oh, man. And then he throws them onto the floor to pick up the Mizzou hat. My heart just sank. I just got done. I took my son today to meet his great-great-grandfather, who's 100 years old. Um, took him. So, And then as soon as I get home from that experience, I see that Luther Burden has committed to Mizzou. And then it looks like your guy, Jeff Allen, is implying that Whitney Merciless is coming to Kansas City. And then Quint, Kent Swanson jumps on the podcast. I couldn't have had a better, like, three or four hours than I had. Um, and I got to tell you, Kent, Mizzou's covering that point spread in 2023. <laughs> hey, you know what? For your sake and for the western edges of Chiefs Kingdom, let's hope so. I love it. Well, Kent. I hope you're familiar. If you're familiar with the podcast, we ask this question to all of our guests at the end. If you could go back, watch one moment live in baseball history, you are there in person. What are you watching? Man, it's <sighs> strike three called oh. Wade. I, man, I'm not like, I, you made me for a second there. I got a little emotional. I was at the wild card game and like almost picked that. Cause I mean, y'all know you're Royals fans. If you care, if you really care about this team, like this team has brought you to tears in the last six years in a lot of good ways. So the payoff for being a Royals fan our whole life and seeing the Salvi moment was like, it meant everything. I sobbed, man. I sobbed. I seriously, I sobbed all night. There were, I, anytime I watched that, like I, I stayed up and just watched, I think like MLB had like the same show on repeat, like three times from like one to 4 a.m. And I just stayed up and watched and I seriously sobbed like for multiple times. So that one, but actually, you know, being at city field and seeing that would, would have been pretty dope too. Um, I, yeah, those are the, the strike three called. <laughs> That's it. The Royals you, have done it. <laughs> you were talking about the, um, just the the emotions there's a video it's called the the blue october or something on youtube like oh yeah my, i know what you're talking my, about <laughs> oh my god i love i watch that video periodically and my yeah. favorite part of it is when stephen a smith i hate stephen a stephen a smith but stephen a smith is on the the clip talking about and gerard dyson hit man and he talks about just all the running and how stephen a has bought into the royals and then um like pretty soon like we're we're working from the wild card game to Gordon in the air to center, and it's just like the goosebumps. I've I've yeah. got them right now. Yeah, that team, that whole team. You talk about having like charisma to make you bought into the team. Oh, I just oh, there, like the emotions. It was it was so much fun. The the undefeated start in fourteen mm-hmm. to the playoffs. Two things. I I um. I cried during the opening day of 2015 when they just absolutely molly watched. I was like, Oh my God, they might be good again. I, and it, I know it was one game, but there was just something about that team that just like, Oh, they were on a revenge tour. Yeah. All year. Yeah. And so, but I mean, I think, I think the, the start, the un unbelievable, like literally unbelievable start to that playoff run after the wild card game felt a lot like Mahomes mania when he first started. Like there was just something about it. You didn't, it was like you had to pinch yourself. Like they just went and swept two teams to make it to the world series. 
And funnily enough, it ends unceremoniously on the doorstep of a, of a championship. And what happens? You doubt yourself. You question whether you're ever going to see it in your lifetime. You, you wonder, you know, you know how hard it was to get to that point. You know the kind of effort, energy, luck, you know, consistency it took. And you wondered if they were going to be able to do it the next year. And then they did it. And both of the, you know, they, they both did it. And, you know, there were big moments of adversity, even just against Houston, both the chiefs. And I mean, there are, there's more correlations to those runs than maybe we talk about, or maybe we appreciate, but man, I was, I was in Kansas city. I was in the, so Mahomes first home game against San Fran, I was in the opposite end zone when he made that ridiculous touchdown throw to, was it Conley or Robinson? It was Conley. Conley. I was in the opposite end zone. And so, like you said, after the Chargers game, I was like, whoa, like that was cool. And then he goes out and throws five touchdowns in Pittsburgh, who yeah. had just religiously had your number forever. And then it was like, is this is this really happening? Like you said. And then that that throw that he made to Conley on the run to me was kind of like Salvador Perez's walk-off, where it was just kind of like, I'm I'm in. I am all in on the idea that this team could actually do it. Mm-hmm. Like, because for, I'm ready for, to be hurt again. I'm ready to in be a hurt. different way. It's like, I, I didn't like, no matter how, like the Royals, I will never forget. Um, it was, was it Salvi? He goes out, he catches a foul. He catches a pop-up. He turns around, hugs Greg Holland. The Royals are going to the playoffs. And I was like, okay, like maybe. And then they win the wild card game. That's when I was like, I'm in, I am bought in. Same with that throw from the homes to Conley. I saw that play. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. I was like, I'm in. Okay, if he can do that, he can do anything. He can exercise all the demons. Like, I don't need to see anything else. That play, I'm good. I'm in. Let's just see how the rest of the season plays out. Um, never, I will never forget watching that play unfold because the whole time I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> what? Yeah? <laughs> we, have, we have the best player in the world? What? You know, like, it just felt like there's just, like, moments that felt like, destiny it felt like things changed you know man the royals have made me the royals have brought me to tears more than the chiefs have just just full disclosure i don't know what it is maybe it's because i i get to be a fan more than i you know as a royals fan i guess maybe there's a little bit about that you know but um and a little bit that's taken away is i mean i still cried during the Chiefs super bowl don't get me wrong but um yeah it's 14 15 was special man it's hard to completely explain. It's just different. So I just, we're, we're, I'm just lucky we got to experience it in our lifetime, you know? Yeah, and hopefully we get to it again. God, I don't want to wait 30 more years. <laughs> you well, know, you know, so, yeah. like a scary thing to think about with professional sports. Yeah. This will be my final thought before we get out of here. The idea that the one team has to wait 30 years before they win their next championship. One team has to. And the first time that somebody repeats in a 30-year window, you add on to that other team's year. And now it's 31. And now it's 32. So, like, the Patriots winning six Super Bowls in a span of 20 years, yeah, somebody is going to go 40 years without winning a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. It is a horrifying thought if you're a owner or a GM of a team. Right. Like somebody's going to go 40 years at winning the Super Bowl. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that was the Royals for a people, while. People don't realize how hard it is. People don't appreciate how hard it is. One team 
ends up, you know, winning a championship every year. It people don't realize how you know hard it is. Even with you know having, she's at the best player in the in the world. He legit changes the outcome of you know like he legit just like he changes the money line differently than anybody in the world. And it's still we're one for three, you know. So yeah. I mean, you just got to appreciate because a lot has to things still have to go right for you. And we got to line up on side. Yeah. <laughs> Buddy. <laughs> yeah. I just had a nom fly. He said I'm glided up off sides. <laughs> Was I? Did I? <laughs> oh, yes, God. D. And then we got 5-5 five, five and he wasn't off sides. And That's exactly Super right. Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my okay, God. this has been awesome. Let's do it again this offseason. Uh, Absolutely. And for those that – if you're not following Kent, like what are you doing? Kent underscore Swanson on Twitter, KC Sports Network, doing some incredible work covering the Chiefs, uh, the KC Laboratory. You guys do two live shows a week, right? Uh, KC Lab does one live show outside the trenches with BJ Kissel, okay. Nick Leckie, Tunker Franklin. They do a live show on Thursdays. So we got two live shows. We got one. Well, we have a live post game show on Sundays as well. So we yeah, go he, live three times. So yeah. Yeah. Kent, Kent goes live at halftime and after the game on Sunday with BJ Kissel at the bullpen bar. It'll be the kingdom bar and grill here uh, shortly. All your Chiefs coverage go to these guys. It's some of the best out there, regardless of affiliate uh, network affiliation. It's, it's awesome work. So, Kent, we really appreciate your time, man. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Mad love, mad respect for y'all.